Well, this is our first podcast of 2021. Welcome to No Nonsense with Pamela Wallen. We can't really quite turn the page yet on COVID, but the costs keep mounting in lives and treasure. And it is clear that this will shape and perhaps even determine the answers to so many questions uh, that are still out there. Everything from energy and the economy and the U.S. election and, and you name it. Our guest today is Gary Marr. He's the president and CEO of the Canada West Foundation. That's a Calgary-based think tank that's been around for nearly 50 years. Um, it's got an interesting history in and of itself, and we'll maybe talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but to focus on Gary, this, uh, well, his track record is amazing. He is most recently the president of the Petroleum Services Association of Canada. He was an MLA and cabinet minister in Alberta between 93 and 2007. He then went on to Washington as Alberta's representative there and again to Asia 2011 to 2015. So he is smack dab in the middle of all of this. Let's start, uh, Gary, if we can, with the election and how this is going to shape things. It's pretty crazy. You've spent time in Washington. I've spent time in the U.S. What do you make of it all? Well, let me say, first of all, there's a couple of areas where Donald Trump and Joe Biden are the same. Uh, they both focused in their campaigns on an America first or buy America or uh, build back better. Uh, and if you look at Biden's document on build back better, it really on the United States. Um, one area that they're also the same is with respect to their approach to China. They, uh, they are concerned about uh, perhaps some legitimate issues with respect to trade with China. But here's where they're dramatically different. Uh, one is that I think that you'll find that the trade rules that are put in place by a Biden administration will be A, more comprehensible, and B, more transparent. And so that's good for Canada. That's good for trade in general. That's so interesting. Where I think they're going to be uh, dramatically uh, different is that Biden appears to me to be much more of a supporter and has said as much of multilateral approaches rather than unilateral approaches. He's not just going to pull out of something because he's unhappy uh, with, uh, with something that's, uh, that's occurred. So uh, I think this is also good for Canada. And maybe that leads into the issue of how you deal with the Canadian issue of the two Michaels. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it would have been impossible to have gotten a solution uh, to repatriating uh, Kovrig and Spavor. But with Biden, I think there's probably a better chance that uh, you could cobble together a coalition of like-minded countries to say uh, to China, this is not how we conduct diplomacy. And so I think, uh, you know, overall, uh, you know, much remains to be seen, of course, what happens in, uh, in Washington. Uh, tomorrow will be the, uh, the runoff for the two uh, Senate seats in Georgia, and uh, that, that could have an impact on uh, trade issues, on, on a whole host of issues, uh, legislation, uh, how far Biden is able to go with uh, his environmental, uh, uh, you know, uh, plans. Um, but if, if the Republicans retain the majority in the Senate, um, Joe Biden will have difficulty passing legislation on some of the things that he wants. And so what you should expect is that he'll try and accomplish as much of his agenda 
using regulations instead of mm-hmm. legislation uh, and executive orders, which of course is uh, pretty commonplace now uh, based on the experience of the current incumbent of the White House. So when you look, because of course, energy is your your bread and butter in many ways. Um, when you look at the Green New Deal and, and literally trillions of dollars uh, set aside for that, some of the actions of uh, democratic governors already in terms of pipelines and and the flow of energy are you um, how do you read that i mean let's let's say with a with a majority of uh, all three uh, houses or all three areas or or even if they don't control the senate well it, it with respect to energy and let's specifically look at keystone xl i I can't say that I'm optimistic about Keystone X, but I can see a pathway where it could get approved. I mean, Joe Biden spent, you know, four decades in the Senate. He knows all of these guys. He knows how to cut a deal with guys like Mitch McConnell. And here's a scenario I could see him going to, you know, to uh, Senator McConnell and saying, look, you tell me what you need out of this administration. I'll tell you what the administration needs out of the Senate. And then we start to negotiate and maybe mm-hmm. energy is one of those pieces. Uh, you know, Senator McConnell comes from a coal state. You've got uh, other senators that are very, very strong in the Senate that are Democrats like Joe Manchin, who are very pro energy. Uh, you've got, you know, governors that are uh, from, you know, the, uh, the Gulf coast and senators from the Gulf coast who want to see energy come to fill up those refineries in, in the U S Gulf coast. So I could see a scenario where there is perhaps a solution, even within uh, the, uh, the current uh, composition of the U.S. Senate and the administration. You put on top of that uh, Joe Biden's desire to re-enter into Paris, mm-hmm. uh, and this may not sit well with, um, you know, uh, with Western premiers here in Canada, but they must rely upon Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, to have a good relationship with Joe Biden. And uh, from past experience, it appears that they do have a good relationship. We should never discount uh, the importance of the relationship between the occupants of 24 Sussex and 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue to get things done. And you could see a scenario where the Prime Minister goes to the uh, President Biden and says, look, you want to come back uh, to... um, to being part of the Paris Accord, we can help. We need to have a North American energy strategy. We don't want to um, be out of step with what the United States is doing. And uh, the United States will have to take steps to go along some of the things that we've already put in place in Canada. And uh, if if the Prime Minister has a willing partner, uh, perhaps uh, one of the things that would be on the table would be the approval of the Keystone XL pipeline. So there's lots of scenarios. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's difficult to know what's going to happen for sure. uh, But uh, there are all kinds of possibilities and don't discount the possibility that Keystone could be approved. You were once in an earlier life, a minister of environment, of course, the, the climate um, writ large was a little different than the political climate. But if we are, looking for some kind of reconciliation, some kind of balance between a robust energy sector 
and mitigating climate concerns. Um, is that in your mind really doable? Those things are always pitted against one another, that if you're pro-energy, you're anti-climate, and if you're pro-climate, vice versa. Uh, do you think, I mean, we're seeing it on, on COVID in the economy that these sort of, you know, if we fight, if we're fighting COVID, we have to kind of shut down the economy to do it. There are lots of people that believe there was a middle ground that we have missed. Do you feel the same way about the energy question? No, I, I don't. I think that 25 years ago, there were three sort of separate spheres of public policy, energy, the environment, and the economy. And now more than ever, those three spheres, if we're thinking of it as a, uh, as a Venn diagram, those mm -hmm. three spheres overlap with one another because you cannot have any kind of robust economy without access to affordable, reliable energy. You cannot have any kind of energy without having some impact on the environment. But when I look at the technology that's being developed, uh, it is remarkable. And let me say my overall thesis is energy is good. It's emissions that are bad. And if you can deal <laughs> with the emissions, uh, then uh, you can continue to develop energy in an affordable, reliable way. And you've got major oil producers, uh, Canadian companies that are making commitments to net zero by 2050. Uh, I think that the combination of technology and, and uh, carbon credits uh, can get us there. You've got governments that are committing to that. I think it's entirely possible that the type of energy that we develop today, A, will be used in a different way in the future, and B, it will be produced in a way uh, that has uh, dramatically less emissions. And this would be a positive way to move forward on all three policy spheres of energy, the environment, uh, and the economy. But but is there going to be, I guess, the chance to do that if we move forward with um, what the Prime Minister announced, you know, mere hours after Parliament uh, shutting down the new climate strategy, uh, carbon tax increases, the Canadian fuel standard coming. Uh, it, 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 you get the sense that they're not prepared to give the oil and gas, the tradi traditional hydrocarbon sector, a chance to do what you're saying, because what's happening is even the projects that are already approved can't go forward because capital is, uh, is fleeing. Yeah, I mean, it, it started long before what that was, was announced just before right, right. Christmas of 2020. I mean, you look at uh, bills like C-48 and Bill C-69, I think uh, this created a great deal of uncertainty with, uh, with respect to whether or not energy was an important part of uh, the economic interests of Canada. Certainly Bill Morneau, uh, Seamus O'Regan, uh, both have spoken uh, uh, in the past about how uh, energy, including the traditional fossil fuel industry, remains an important part of the future economy of Canada. You know, I think it's important to note that about 25% of Canada's exports are in the form of, you know, crude oil uh, and, uh, and fossil fuel, you know, products. That is a significant part of your economy. Um, and so I think it's, you know, when we look at natural resources more broadly, uh, this is part of the bread and butter of what has made Canada uh, really, uh, you know, a, a great country in terms of its standard of living and, uh, and the 
quality of life that we enjoy here in Canada. So um, I think that um, when I look at the announcements made by the Prime Minister just before Christmas, uh, a lot of it is lacking in any kind of detail as to how mm-hmm. you would accomplish these things. The, the general sort of sentiment is, is that we're going to put forward legislation and we'll figure it all out later in regulations. I don't think that's a particularly good way to go. But Gary, that's where we are now with those bills in place, with the government's declared policy, although everybody agrees it's it's pretty vague. Uh, we're seeing the... Uh, the carbon tax moves come. I know it's it's hurting the energy industry, but I'm telling you, it's really hurting the agriculture industry here where I live <laughs> um, in terms of the farmers and just home heating, just the distances we travel and what will mean uh, it will mean for the price of a tank of gas as we head toward meeting these Paris climate targets. What what do we do about that? Well, I mean, I know everyone's still waiting for the Supreme Court decision on this, but we've got Quebec going at it another way with the, the cap and trade and, and other provinces um, either embracing or resisting the carbon tax. What's in your mind the best way to approach this? Well, I think if you look at energy overall across the country, I mean, the sources of energy differ dramatically from province to province. And uh, take, for example, clean fuel standards. Uh, I don't oppose the idea of clean fuel standards, but if you look at each province's legislations and regulations, uh, they already uh, accommodate, you know, some form of clean fuel standard that reflects uh, the kind of regional differences that there are with respect to how energy is produced. So uh, that seems to me to be uh, an an argument to say that the federal government need not regulate in this area as they have, uh, as they are wont to do. It is an accretion or a pancaking of regulations on top of regulations, and there's no coordination. So uh, in Quebec, about roughly, uh, roughly half of the energy produced in Quebec uh, is with hydro. And that's a remarkable that's a remarkable thing. But that also means that roughly half of their energy comes from fossil fuels. And we saw last year when there were blockades um, on uh, on uh, trains that were taking propane into Quebec. This was a serious serious issue um, for um, for Quebec hospitals and long term care centers mm-hmm. and so on. So we have to recognize that fossil fuels will remain an important part of our energy mix uh, for decades to come, um, but it will be important for us to find ways of reducing the GHGs associated with it and try to place a set of rules that apply the same to the province of Alberta or Western Canada as they might for Atlantic Canada or Quebec or Ontario uh, seems to me to be a lack of recognition that energy is produced dramatically differently in different parts of the country. Well, and then that leads to the other consequences. I mean, there's much discussion these days, as you know, that a carbon tax that will rise to $170 a ton by 2030, and then you compare that with with Quebec's cap and trade plan, where it's about 17 bucks a ton, we'll go up a little bit from that as well. This creates political uh, divisions and crises as well. I think you're right about that. There's uh, there's no doubt that there is a strong sense 
uh, in Western Canada that we are being treated uh, differently uh, than other parts of Canada. And that is creating a great deal of, uh, of unhappiness, uh, particularly in the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan. I'm just wondering whether you see a way, I mean, you're logical that, that the provinces have rules that exist already, we're over-regulated when it comes to the carbon tax, there's actually GST on a tax, so we're taxing taxes in addition to, uh, to regulations. Is there any way for us to kind of move forward with the objective of responding to climate needs and embracing the idea that oil and gas and will be around for a while without it being punitive to the energy sector and the agriculture sector? Well, uh, you've hit it right on the head as to how the how this gets resolved. It strikes me that uh, it can only be resolved by the coordination and collaboration among and between uh, provincial premiers and, uh, and, and it, at the first minister's level. Um, it doesn't seem to me that, uh, that Canadians have really understood this argument particularly well, uh, perhaps because of the attention that's being paid to COVID, uh, people are not paying attention to this idea that you'll have a carbon tax that goes to $170 a ton. Uh, I think that uh, perhaps when Canadians come to this realization, uh, then there may be uh, a greater uh, following of those premiers that are trying to make a difference uh, with the federal government and saying uh, that we need to look at this in a more balanced way. And I think it would be uh, fair to say it is not being viewed in a particularly balanced way at this time. Um, I mean, I, the thing that I have trouble with, I guess, is the whole point of a carbon tax is supposed to be to change behavior. We're going to make the, the good so expensive that you'll drive less or you'll take the bus, even though none of that is realistic in rural parts of, of this country. But if you then say it's to be revenue neutral or we're going to rebate and in fact, you're going to end up with more money in your pocket than you had before, um, then I don't know how you achieve the objective. That is an excellent question. And uh, to me, the idea of a carbon tax is not a bad idea per se, but there's other ways of trying to achieve it uh, that makes sense. So in Alberta and Saskatchewan, for example, they have a levy on carbon emissions on large mm -hmm. emitters. That's not emitters. a level. Uh, that's on large emitters. And what they do with the money is they take the money and they put them into technology funds. And this is how a province like Saskatchewan is able to put a billion dollars into carbon capture and storage uh, in, uh, in the province of Saskatchewan. Now, the province of Saskatchewan, population-wise, you know, a billion dollars is a significant contribution. Yeah, and for sure. Credit, credit should be given uh, to, uh, to the government of that province. Credit should also be given uh, to the Kenny government here in Alberta, where they've done the same thing. I mean, who's had a carbon tax or carbon levy sooner than any other province in North America? It's the province of Alberta since 2006. But the difference between this carbon levy and the carbon tax that the, that the federal put in place is that the carbon levy actually raises money to go back into a technology fund that allows... Uh, us to be able to develop energy with a lower carbon emission. I think that's a very positive thing. 
you look at Alberta's carbon trunk line as an example, a way of moving CO2 from where it's being produced into, um, in, into other industrial uses or into uh, carbon capture, reduces the amount of CO2 that goes into the atmosphere. That's something that a carbon tax, as currently iterated by the federal government, does not do. Do you think um, Premier Kenny's view has changed on this? I, I read a piece that you wrote, I don't know when it was, I think last fall maybe, um, in October, in which you've said that that he has really stated this, I don't know who's paying attention, but that if you're going to attract capital or perhaps more importantly, keep capital and, and stop the flight, that there is going to have to be a demonstration that companies and governments are serious about improving environmental performance. When you talk to people in the industry and people like you, they say, look, we're doing this. It's just not being acknowledged or recognized. I think that's a fair comment. I think that uh, if you, uh, again, I go back to those major producers uh, here in Canada of, of, uh, of energy, um, you know, I think that probably 80% of Canada's uh, oil and gas is produced by less than a half a dozen companies, five companies. And uh, they're making commitments to being net zero by 2050. Uh, this is a remarkable thing. And they're putting the money in. Here's an example when it comes to clean technology of the $2 billion uh, that's been invested in clean technology, about three quarters of it has been by the oil and gas business. And you've got, you know, uh, you know, significant producers that are making those kinds of commitments, recognizing uh, that we want to continue to have the energy that we need for our economies, while at the same time, uh, you know, investing in technologies that can allow us to transition to lower uh, GHG emission platforms. I think this is a very good thing. And I, I think that people like Minister O'Regan have acknowledged mm -hmm. the efforts uh, of the oil and gas industry. I'm not sure that's true uh, of the majority of people uh, in the federal cabinet today. They, I mean, the other argument, I guess, is if you look at the hydrogen strategy or the mini nuke reactor strategy or other things that are associated with all of this, I mean, there is a lot of expertise in the traditional energy sector. Those are the people that you're going to turn to to make this other stuff a reality. It, it's not going to be people that, you know, drop from the sky. It, it's people who know, you know, what they're doing. Well, hydrogen's a really good example because, yeah. um, and there's lots of discussion about green hydrogen and blue hydrogen and so on, but all of that is a red herring because producing green hydrogen can actually, depending on how you produce it, can actually produce more GHGs than getting your hydrogen from natural gas. So, uh, the idea of using natural gas, which is in great abundance in Canada, right. being the source of your hydrogen completely makes sense. And you will still need uh, the kind of people that, you know, petroleum services uh, business uh, uh, to be producing um, uh, natural gas in order to have the hydrogen for uh, fueling up, you know, uh, heavy transportation that goes across the country. I want to ask you about another dilemma because, you know, you're at a think tank. You have to kind of wrestle some of these issues. If we agree that oil and gas will be needed for 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years or whatever number you want to agree on, 
how do we make that argument that Canada's oil is both more ethical and cleaner and produced with higher standards and all of those things which happen to be true how do you make then our mid-east competitors for sure uh, how do you make that argument if we can't convince quebec who'd rather bring in saudi oil or other foreign oil down the saint lawrence and stop the energy east pipeline that if you actually want to make a contribution to a better uh cleaner climate you can do it by shopping locally, like buying your product from another part of Canada? Boy, that, I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I'd be back <laughs> in politics again. Yeah, you'd run for office, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, a, this is a very difficult question. This is a very difficult question. <laughs> and, you know, I don't think that there's an easy solution, but it seems to me that it has to come from the top. There has to be an acknowledgement, you know, by a federal government that producing Canadian energy... Uh, is uh, in characteristics related to ESG, environment, social governance, uh, that, that we do produce it at, a, you know, a very, very high, uh, high level, uh, that we are the very best in the world or among the very best in the world. Yeah. So uh, you've got to have an acknowledgement, you know, uh, at, in levels of government before that is so. And I, you know, I've... Francois Legault uh, is a very sensible, a very sensible guy. He and I were health ministers and education ministers together 25 years ago. Uh, you know, I think that uh, he and his uh, Minister of Energy, uh, Minister Julien, understand uh, the need for fossil fuels into the future. Um, you know, uh, when I met with Minister Julien, he he acknowledged to me. He says, "I know that." You know, Bombardier aircraft don't fly on uh, electricity. And I also know that the most popular vehicle sold in Quebec is the Ford F-150 truck, which does not run on hydrogen or is not an electric. So right. there is an acknowledgement um, but uh, of the importance of fossil fuels and, and will be for, you know, many, many years to come. Um, but you've got to have uh, leadership at the federal level that uh, acknowledges the importance of energy uh, coming out of the traditional fuel industry in Canada and that it is produced at the very highest environmental standards in the world. I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier because um, it, the relationships, uh, you worked in the U.S., I worked in the U.S., it's, you know how important uh, the relationship between presidents and prime ministers are. They don't have to love each other but they do have to get along and they have to talk. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think that that will probably be easier, obviously, with the Trudeau-Biden uh, connection than it was the last time around. But we've got big, big issues. Um, you noted the, the whole situation of the, the two Michaels. You worked in Asia. You are Asian. We've, we're, we're looking at two very different um, approaches to doing business with China particularly because of its uh, its political track record, its abuse of human rights, et cetera. What, what do you think we need to do on that front? Well, you know, in speaking with uh, people who are, are foreign diplomats uh, and, uh, for example, at the United Nations, they spent a lot of time and effort trying to win votes for Canada to have a seat on the UN Security Council. 
that was a Sisyphean exercise. That was never going to happen. We had to know that the Europeans would vote for other Europeans and that the Europeans collectively would have more influence on African votes uh, than Canada could possibly have. Instead of spending their time and money and effort on that, they should be looking at countries who have the same kind of challenges with China that Canada has. So Australia, Mm -hmm. Japan, South Korea, all have examples of their citizens that have been taken, uh, you know, arbitrarily by the Chinese government. And so starting with that cohort of countries and building it out to 20 or 30 other countries who will say, look, if, if this can happen to us, it can happen to you as well. If you don't want that to happen, you must, you must uh, work with us uh, multilaterally. And I think the United States would be a willing partner in this to say, uh, look, when you joined the WTO China, there were certain expectations that we had about you know, adhering to the rules. Uh, and we want to enforce those. And collectively, uh, you know, there, there would be a weight to be able to do that. Canada by itself doesn't have uh, that kind of leverage. But working with you know, uh, a core of important partners and building it out to a coalition of uh, like-minded countries, I think would be a very, very important step. Uh, for so many people resolve. are looking at the Australian example because they have been tough. I mean, they've laid down the law, uh, you know, protecting their, their own country and their own interests. And everybody's kind of looking at us and saying, why didn't we step up? Why are we not actually filling that space? Well, you know, Australia, you have to give them some credit for taking that kind of a strong position. Exactly. Roughly, roughly 40% of their exports go to China. So this is a much greater percentage than Canada's exports to China. Australia is much more reliant uh, upon uh, trade with China than Canada is. And in Canada, I mean, the numbers are out for the first seven months of this year. Uh, while our trade exports went down in virtually every area, the one place that it went up was that it's up about three or four percent with China. So, to some degree, I mean, we have taken advantage of uh, Australia's uh, uh, sort of loss and made it part of our game. Um, but I think that uh, that's not sustainable in the long run. We've all uh, we've all got to work collaboratively and multilaterally to make sure that we have rules that are in place uh, that are fair for trade uh, yeah. throughout the world. I'm not sure that's anything to be proud of. And and I and I know, look, we all know we're very dependent and COVID has probably shone a light on it in a way nothing much else could have, how dependent we are. They they make our pharmaceuticals, they, you know, the vaccines, they make our PPE, they make all of those things that we need. Do you... Do you know why uh, the government of the day seems so reluctant to change its views on China? Do you have a theory? I don't have a theory for that at all. Not, yeah. not one iota. I, I, yeah. I don't purport to have any kind of groundbreaking <laughs> earth <laughs> observation to make in this area. It's just puzzling because we sort of seem naive in the face of evidence to the contrary. Well, maybe maybe there's your answer right there. Uh, yeah, you know the word naive. 
Yeah. All right. I want to come back uh, for those who aren't really familiar with the uh, Canada West Foundation. I mean, I've been was remember covering that way, way, way back when, because it was it was a think tank that really looked at the world from a Western point of view. It was that place that created a lot of the thought and energy behind the reform party, the original reform party, which was all about the West wanting in, not the West wanting out. Um, you've broadened a lot of your work looking at uh, natural resources, human resources, you're an educational charity. What is, and you do, I mean, I was going through the list of, of papers and documents the organization has created. What's from your point of view, the big issue out there that we really have to wrestle? I think uh, when you look at its core, the Canada West Foundation wants to level the playing field of what appears to be an asymmetrical federal public policy in a whole host of areas. And I can give you this example. Uh, the federal government uh, entered into the uh, Canada-European Free Trade Agreement, the CETA. They did a dive analysis as to what the economic impact of that would be. Most of that impact would have been in central Canada, uh, eastern Canada. Uh, after they entered into the agreement, they did an analysis of the kind of trade infrastructure that would be required, airports, roads, bridges, rail, and so on, in order to breathe life into CETA and make the most of the economic opportunity. Compare that to the, um, the issue of um, the TPP. People will recall that the federal government nearly walked away from the TPP. Uh, the Prime Minister stood up, Prime Minister Abe uh, in, uh, in Tokyo. Uh, they didn't do an analysis of the economic opportunity that it represented. Uh, Canada West Foundation did that analysis. Uh, and based on the strength of those numbers, uh, I think that it helped bring the federal government back to the table uh, to enter into the TPP. After that, there was no federal analysis of the trade infrastructure that would be required to breathe life into it. So the Canada West Foundation has done that. It should be noted that 60%, 60% of Canada's exports come out of the four Western provinces. Uh, that's a significant uh, contribution for a region of the country that only represents about 33% of the population. So Correct. we really uh, punch above our weight in terms of exports. And we need the infrastructure. We need the roads, the ports, the legislation uh, that can take our goods uh, and services to market. And the TPP obviously impacted Western Canada much differently than it did Eastern Canada. And, uh, you know, so we're, we're putting our, our data on the table to say this is the kind of infrastructure that's required. We've broken it down province by province to say, here's what they make in Saskatchewan. Here's what you produce in Manitoba, Alberta, British Columbia. And here's the advantage that you have over your biggest trade competitor, uh, the United States, uh, by being a member of the TPP. So let's get on with the infrastructure that helps breathe life and maximizes those opportunities. So um, what makes Canada West Foundation different uh, from, from other think tanks? We, we only look at it from the point of view, what's in the best interests of the West? And this has been our mission for the last 50 years, as you said, 
mm-hmm. and, um, and, and it's something that we hope to continue for the next 50 years. We're one of the oldest think tanks in Canada and the only one that's focused on the interests of the four Western provinces. How do you read the political climate these days? Uh, it seems to ebb and flow with the whole question of uh, separation or some different kind of relationship. The Just the general anger that I feel when I'm at home here, you know, when, when people watch you know, I know uh, we mentioned it before, but, you know, the, the government the day after Parliament uh, rises, you know, ha- unveils this policy. The day after the Prime Minister meets with the Premiers, he announces the carbon tax hike. People take that personally because it is very much directly connected with their day-to-day work. If you're a farmer or a long-haul truck driver. I mean, these things are really real. It's not some theoretical discussion about, you know, uh, how the different parts of the country relate to each other. It's, it's, it's your life, whether or not you can put food on the table. Well, this is uh, one of the challenges of politics is to understand, you know, who brung you to the dance. I mean, I think <laughs> that, uh, that it's, it's important uh it's important for politicians to be grounded with the people who elected them. And, uh, and even if they didn't elect you, it's still important for you to understand, you know, how they live their lives. Uh, if you're going to be making decisions about, you know, how those lives will be changed. It doesn't seem to me that uh, there's a, that the current federal government has a, a real understanding of, uh, of Western Canada. It's partly reflected uh, in, you know, uh, the electoral success that the federal liberals have had. Uh, but it's also uh, reflected by the fact that we just don't have um, a federal bureaucracy that has, has its roots in Western Canada. Mm-hmm. And the only federal department that I can think of that has, um, uh, you know, uh, headquarters in the West is Western Economic Development uh, yeah. in Edmonton. But uh, if people are making decisions uh, in Ottawa, if they think that everything's okay for Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, then it must be okay for the rest of Canada. Uh, that would be uh, an incorrect conclusion to come to. I think there's there's one level and one set of reactions to ignorance. Uh, and I, I don't mean that to be pejorative, but if people have no experience with it, they don't understand it. It's it's another when people feel that they're being punished and for not voting for the federal liberals, right? That actually um, they're not represented there. And, and, and you got that sense. Okay. You didn't vote for us. You don't have a vote. You don't have a seat at the table. Too bad. So sad. Well, we, we really should look at the history of the formation of Canada. All of the institutions were really focused on upper and lower Canada. And then there was a bunch of other stuff that came as an afterthought. <laughs> Um, and so that's how these institutions continue to operate today. And Canada is a, a remarkable place. But I would opine this, that we are a nation in spite of its geography. All of our exactly. geography runs north, south. But, you know, the country runs, you know, uh, thousands of kilometers, you know, from east to west on the number one highway. The majority of Canadians, overwhelming majority of Canadians live within 200 kilometers of the U.S. border, yeah. but because our geography runs north-south, British Columbians sort of identify more closely with what happens in 
with Oregonians and Washingtonians and Californians than they do Albertans. Albertans know more about the oil and gas industry in Wyoming and Oklahoma and Texas than they know about cod stocks off the coast of Newfoundland. Uh, people in Saskatchewan uh, more closely identify uh, with people in the Midwest. Um, you know, people in Ontario know lots about the auto sector, but don't know anything about uh, the importance of uh, the agriculture business to the economy of Canada. You've got people in, uh, you know, Atlantic Canada that more closely identify with the New England states than they do with Quebecers. And, uh, you know, Quebecers spend their vacation time in Florida, you know, not in, uh, not in Manitoba. So very much our country runs north, south, and, and it is a collection of regions that if we acted in collaboration, and this is the part that I have some, I have to have some optimism for, is that we could be, you know, a really great middle power if we understood the differences that make us stronger if we act in concert than if we act separately from one another. So true. It really just has been a pleasure catching up with you, talking with you, getting inside that brain of yours, because uh, that is, in fact, our challenge. And no better time to think about it as we turn a new leaf and start a new year. Thanks, Gary. Senator, it's a pleasure. Thanks a million. Have yeah, a happy right. and, more importantly, a healthy new year. Yes, absolutely. To you too. Gary Marr, the president and CEO of the Canada West Foundation out of Calgary. So that's our first podcast for 2021. Thanks for joining us.